federal courts issue injunctions as Biden's brace ban goes into effect, plus author Radley Balco on the big problems with firearms ballistic analysis. That and more on this episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. No, the devil's got no All right, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Gatowski. I'm also the founder of TheReload.com, where you can head over and check out our weekly newsletter, completely free, that will keep you up to date with the latest on guns in America. You can also purchase a membership if you want to support the reporting that we're doing and gain exclusive access to hundreds of pieces of analysis and reporting that you will not find anywhere else on the internet or the planet or so have you. This week, we are talking with Radley Balko, who is the founder of The Watch. It's a publication on Substack that uh, you guys should consider heading over and checking out once you're done listening to this episode. But we are going to talk about a new piece that he wrote, uh, Devil in the Grooves, The Case Against Forensic Firearms Analysis. And uh, so welcome to the show, Radley. Thanks for coming on. We've had you on once before, so I appreciate you coming back on with a, a, an update here on this whole forensic firearms analysis situation. My pleasure. Yeah. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah. So let's get right into it. The What happened, you know, we talked about this a little while back on the podcast about the general issues with firearms, ballistic analysis and how it's used in courts. Uh, but there's been a specific update, a pretty big one, uh, that you're you're writing about in this piece. Can you talk just a little bit about what that specific event was? Yeah, so this is a ruling in uh, Chicago, uh, Chicago's um, city criminal court judge, um, uh, Judge Hooks. Um, you know, this is a very kind of typical case. Um, this guy, Ricky Winfield, was accused of uh, a shooting. Police found a bullet at the crime scene that they, and they were prepared to call a forensic firearms analyst who's going to match that bullet to a gun that was connected to the defendant, um, uh, Ricky Winfield. And the defense in the case, the Chicago Public Defender's Office, um, mounted a, uh, a, what's called a Fry uh, challenge. And uh, basically it's a challenge to the scientific validity of this type of matching, matching of one bullet to one gun. And most cases, now most defense attorneys wouldn't even bother with one of these challenges. They're almost never successful. We've got you know, a full century of case law upholding this kind of testimony. Um, and yet, in this case, the, the judge, who has kind of a, a history of skepticism of police uh, and prosecutors, granted the hearing. Uh, both sides presented expert witnesses. And ultimately, uh, he barred the forensic firearms analyst from testifying at all, uh, based on the fact that there's no scientific foundation to this idea that you can match one bullet uh, to one gun. Now, you know, this is this is a landmark ruling because while other courts, both state and federal, and, and including at the appellate level, have limited what firearms analysts can say, um, told them, for example, you can't say, you know, it's, it's a statistical Im- impossibility that any gun other than this gun could have fired this bullet, or you know, uh, this bullet is a match to this gun, um, and made them use more kind of circumspect language. Um, this is the first ruling that's ever completely barred an, an analyst from testifying at trial. And so that, in that mm-hmm. sense, it's a pretty, pretty big deal. Okay. So this is a first of its kind ruling saying that this entire field of forensic firearms analysis isn't reliable enough to be used as evidence in a criminal uh, court case like this. That's right. And, and, you know, what he said, and I think this is intuitive, you know, he said, 
look, there are things that forensic firearms analysts can testify to that are backed by science. Um, and these are what, what are called um, class characteristics. So the caliber of a bullet, for example, um, which direction the bullet, the gun spins the bullet as it leaves the barrel, um, uh, things like how many, how many um, uh, uh, grooves are, are in the barrel, you know, that are- As part of the rifling. As part of the rifling. Um, but these are characteristics that are shared by large numbers of guns, right, obviously. And so for that, because of that, it's, it's information that you don't need any specialized expertise to, to notice, right, and to, and to, to, to um, uh, yeah, to notice and to, to notate. Um, the very well, so, You need some level of expertise to understand it, but not... Yeah, not necessarily. but it's not. Yeah, I mean, a, a person, the same degree as some of the, what they're trying. Some of the reasonable familiarity with guns could probably tell you the caliber of bullet right. and you know the grooves right. maybe is a little bit more, but you don't need a microscope necessarily um, to look at the mm -hmm. grooves. Um, the the very sort of uh, expertise that makes them qualified to be experts in a trial um, is the stuff that can specifically narrow it down to one specific gun. And that's the very type of testimony that there's no scientific validity for. So in Hooks's opinion, it's like, well, what's the point of certifying you of an expert if the only thing I can let you say, you know, scientifically is stuff that, you know, anyone who's not an expert or not anyone that you, but lots of people who aren't experts can sure. also tell a jury. Um, and I think I that see, makes sense, so. especially when you think that, you know, when just the fact that you have an expert testifying makes that person sort of credible, more credible to a jury because mm -hmm. um, they think, well, there must be a reason why this person is here. Um, so then anything they say after that is going to give them much more, you know, more weight than it probably should be. And that was his hooks of reasoning in this. Okay. I see. So it's not that you can't, that the, in this particular case, that prosecution won't be able to introduce any firearms related evidence, like the class uh, level analysis that you're talking about where you, uh, this is a nine millimeter, uh, that was fired from a gun that has this many lands and grooves in it from the rifling. Uh, and this, the defendant has a gun that, that matches that generally what you, what they're, what he's not allowing is having someone come in certified as an expert to make claims about that specific bullet recovered being a match for the specific gun fired, excluding all other possible guns, right? Right, and, and sometimes they'll use okay. language that hedges a little bit, but the, his his reasoning, and there's academic research to back this up, is that you know, if you tell a jury, I can't exclude this gun as having fired this bullet, right? They will take that for what it's worth. Like they will, they, they will say, okay, well, that means you're not excluding the defendant, but you're also, or you're not saying that right. it could only have been this person. As soon as you start using any kind of language that, kind of specifies the defendant. If you say, you know, it is my opinion that the gun is the most likely source of this bullet, or if you say no other gun on the planet could have fired this bullet, juries tend to hear all of that and give it the same sort of amount of evidentiary. Right? This, this expert is matching this bullet to this gun, no matter what the language is. And so he's saying, you know, you can use this very broad stuff, you know, that, that doesn't exclude, but I'm not going to let you say, this bullet can only, you know, match this bullet to this gun because jurors always hear that the same way. Okay. Okay. Interesting. So that's the specific update. And we'll get into a little bit more of the specific issues with firearms related uh, ballistic analysis in a moment. But I want to zoom out first because in your piece, you describe how firearms ballistic analysis is part of a larger 
pool of evidence uh, that's potentially questionable at the very least uh, what's in what's called pattern matching. Uh, this is sort of the stuff that you see on CSI and a lot of cop TV shows uh, where, you know, this includes what all kinds of things, right? Like bite, bite mark analysis, carpet uh, matching, you know, uh, all sorts of things, right? Uh, trying to match screwdrivers to hold, you know, marks left on a door or a crowbar or something like that. This is all uh, part of a, the, the same category of evidence, right? Right. Yeah, so this is all called pattern matching, um, and this is you know this is these this type of, of <clears throat> excuse me expertise really starts being developed in the progressive era where um, you know you had police policing was becoming more professionalized, and so the idea was policing shouldn't be sort of a patronage or crony position; it should be a career, and so we want police to sort of specialize in various you know, areas of, of law enforcement. And one of the areas was, was this idea of forensics. So this is where you start to get fingerprint analysis, um, ballistics analysis, um, you know, shoe print analysis. Uh, and you get these kind of specializations that have kind of the, what you might say, the, sh the veneer and kind of sheer of science or shine of science. Um, but they're all kind of developed within the auspices of law enforcement. They don't they don't come from the scientific community. In fact, science and criminal justice kind of move on parallel paths for most of the 20th century um, until the 1990s when we get DNA testing. And DNA testing, you know, emerges from the scientific community and it starts showing us that a lot of these fields and forensics that we thought were kind of foolproof or, or, or certain or absolute uh, were resulting in wrongful convictions. And so then now the scientific community kind of perks up and they start taking an interest in these fields and start, um, you know, testing them, testing the fundamental kind of underlying premises. And so pattern matching, you know, had been pretty universally accepted in courts, whether it's bite marks, uh, whether it's, you know, as you said, uh, hair fiber, hair and carpet fiber, um, shoe prints, tire tread, you know, anything where you're matching two pieces of evidence and looking at them and seeing if they're a match. Uh, and the problem with pattern matching, you know, from a scientific perspective is that we don't know, uh, you know, so I talked about the class characteristics, right? And these are the very broad mm -hmm. characteristics. The, right. the, the, the characteristics that allow you to narrow things down, narrow it down to one gun, for example, or one set of teeth are called individual characteristics. Um, and these are the tiny microscopic marks that you see on a bullet that they claim, you know, could only come from this particular gun barrel. Well, the problem with that is we don't know how unique those characteristics are. We don't know how often a certain bite pattern or a certain uh, rifling pattern occurs over the entire population of bullets. And so we can't generate a margin for error the way we can for, say, DNA. In DNA, we know the genetic markers, uh, and we know the alleles that are each marker at each marker, and we know how often those alleles appear across the entire human population. So if you have so many matching alleles at those markers, we can say the odds of anyone other than the defendant leaving this, you know, owning this blood are one and, you know, whatever, three billion. We can't do that for any of these other fields because we don't know how often these characteristics occur across the population. And so it's all about judgment. It's about eyeballing it. It's about for, for ballistics, what happens is a, a, an analyst will put two bullets um, under a microscope and they'll have a split screen on their uh, you know monitor and they'll just look at the two and they'll just- Sort of the classic CSI yeah, setup. That it's a match or it's not a match. And the problem is that 
we don't know how good they are at it. And the tests that have been done have, have suggested that, you know, they, there's a pretty high per, uh, error. Well, so uh, one of the things that you talk about in your piece going off of this DNA discussion here is, is this, that level of scientific specificity that you get with DNA is part of the reason why we suspect that other types of pattern matching aren't as rigorous right. right aren't as reliable right because one of the things that began to happen in the 1990s with the rise of dna testing is that people began to get exonerated from certain crimes where dna was you know a part of the evidence kit right. that they could go back and look at and find that the suspect or the convict person who was convicted wasn't a match for the DNA in the case, um, at, whereas during the case, they had used these different pattern matching um, techniques uh, instead of DNA. And uh, is that a good summation of how we understand that these other techniques are less reliable? Yeah. Is so that DNA, why or like, what yeah. is it? So DNA started showing us that they, they had gotten it wrong and they had gotten it wrong in ways that sent innocent people to prison and allowed guilty people to remain free. And so what happens is the scientific community starts noticing this. And so they start running tests on the basic kind of underlying premises of some of these fields. So, for example, bite mark matching, they ran tests looking at uh, trying to answer questions like, is human skin even capable of recording a bite in a way that makes it useful to be compared to other teeth? What they found is it doesn't. It's, human skin is incredibly elastic. It can stretch. Um, when you bite someone, you know, in the heat of a struggle, for example, the person may be pulling away, how fast you heal has, you know, factors into it. And, and so, you know, they found that the two main premises of bite mark matching that human dentition is, is unique, that we all have a unique bite. There's no evidence for that. And they found that human skin isn't capable of recording in a bite, a bite in a useful way. And then they also have tested actual bite mark analysts and found that they're not uh, when, when they're given the exact same evidence, they frequently disagree about what conclusions can be drawn from that evidence. So if you show them the same alleged bite um, in some of these studies, you found widespread disagreement over whether it's a human bite, whether it's a bite at all, whether it's a bite that's that's um, has been recorded well enough that it can be used for analysis. And, you know, in the scientific community, if you if we're in accepted science and you give a hundred scientists, you know, um, a question like that, and you ask them to apply existed, existing sort of known scientific principles, they're going to come up, they're all going to come back with the same answer, right? I mean, there, there are areas of theoretical science, or maybe that's not the case, but within the accepted science, that's what science is, right? It's predictability. We apply the knowledge that we have and we can get this outcome. If, if these forensic analysts can't even agree on what the same exact same piece of evidence shows, how can we rely on them to sort of give objective, you know, um, predictable, scientifically sound testimony in court? Um, so within pattern matching, basically, it's it's come down to kind of this idea of eyeballing the evidence, saying whether it's a match. And what juries do, then do, you know, because there's no ground truth in a lot of these cases, right? Unless there's DNA, we never know for sure if this person was guilty or not, right? The jury reaches its verdict, but there's never a test, right? So we can't even look at a track record for these experts. So juries end up just sort of judging their credibility based on how persuasive they are on the witness stand and what their experience level is. And the interesting thing is a couple of things, a couple of responses to that. One is that 
the set of skills it takes to be persuasive to a jury is not necessarily the same set of skills it takes to be a good scientist or a good analyst. In fact, they could be contradictory, right? Juries want um, uh, certainty. They want to be told what the answer is, right? They hate circumspection. Well, problem is science is often circumspect, right? Uh, science ter- talks in terms of probabilities, in terms of margin for error. And so if you're willing to kind of, you know, eschew the science and give certain answers, that makes you a less thorough and careful and conscientious analyst, but it probably makes you a better expert witness because that's what juries want to hear. Um, the other thing is that, you know, juries tend to, they, they have their own biases in terms of they, they tend to think that defense witnesses are hired guns, whereas prosecution witnesses are, you know, sort of public servants and only in it for all the right reasons. Um, and so, you know, they end up using the wrong criteria when determining the credibility of these witnesses. One thing that comes out of these two studies I talked about in the piece that are sort of science-based studies, these, these um, proficiency tests that were given to the analysts, one thing that comes out of it that's really striking is that there's no correlation between experience and training of the people who took the test and their performance on the test. So you would think that if experience and training are what makes one of these experts more credible, the experts with more experience and more training would do better on proficiency tests. And that just, there's no data to to suggest that, Um, which again, suggests that it's sort of more about subjectivity and kind of eyeballing it than it is about actual science. Right. Uh, So one of the things you mentioned in the piece is this um, reality that uh, for firearms ballistic analysis in particular, there have been fewer exonerations than for other pattern matching uh, based um, convictions, right? So, so there's, there's been fewer people exonerated uh, for over convictions based on ballistic matching than there have on, for instance, bite mark matching or, or uh, you know, other yeah, forms of, of pattern matching. Yeah. F- fiber matching. Uh, can you just talk a little bit about why you think that exists? Because obviously this is a defense that uh, you, you will see from people who believe in this sort of ballistic matching evidence and, and experts that are used at trial. Right. So, yeah, we've, we're probably about four or five exonerate, you know, sort of accepted exonerations uh, of people who are convicted primarily with ballistic um, evidence. Whereas bite marks, it's I think it's over two dozen, and hair 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 and carpet fiber, it's uh, well into the dozens. Um, well, the reason for that is because the, the the only you know once you've been convicted, the system puts a premium on finality, right? The idea is to protect the verdict. You want to protect the legitimacy of the system. You can't be sort of overturning jury verdicts left and right. Um, the problem with that is that you know so once you're convicted, then it becomes really really difficult to get a court to relook to look at your case again. Um, the only exception is DNA. The courts have been, you know, at this point, accept DNA testing in most cases, although there's been some chipping away at that, too. Um, but they've, they, they, they've been convinced that DNA is rock solid and that if you have DNA uh, evidence showing that you're innocent, you're going to get back into court. Well, if you think, consider what kinds of cases have DNA evidence that can that, you know, is dispositive of guilt, what kind of cases as well? It's rape. It's murder. Maybe it's, you know, a, a mugging or burglary situation if you leave some DNA behind. Um, but we know that, for example, with hair analysis, with uh, blood, uh, any kind of blood analysis, and with bite mark analysis, those are all evidence that are biological in nature, which means they either are, you know, they either contain DNA themselves or with a bite mark, there's probably going to be DNA around the bite, right, with saliva. 
by its very nature, you know, ballistics evidence is is not biological. A bullet is not biological. Um, and in most cases, if, if a conviction turns on ballistics testing, it's going to be the kind of shooting that uh, for which there's very likely to be very unlikely to be any DNA. It's going to be a shooting from a distance. If you shoot somebody up close, there's a chance you might leave some DNA behind. If it's a drive-by or shooting somebody from a distance, you're probably not. So the very sorts of cases in which this type of evidence is most important are going to be the very sorts of cases for which the only type of evidence that courts tend to be persuaded by uh, is going to be least available. So it's not that there haven't been uh, just as many wrongful convictions uh, with ballistics evidence as other these other types of pattern matching evidence. I think the safe bet is it's probably about a roughly equal percentage as in the other fields. It's just that we don't have that rock solid slam dunk DNA evidence that courts usually require to revisit those convictions. Okay, I see. Now, uh, the other defense that you'll hear from ballistic analysis um, experts is that they have developed their own tests for demonstrating competency and demonstrating their expertise in, in doing this sort of work to a degree that they believe is uh, makes it admissible in court. Right. Uh, can you talk, you talked a little bit about sort of the, these tests earlier. Can you just explain the critiques that you have of the way that the, um, that, that most prosecutors offices and most experts uh, actually conduct these sorts of tests or use them in court, um, uh, you know, some of their weaknesses and, and why you think they're flawed. Sure. So, yeah. So if you can't, if we can't generate a margin for error the way we can DNA when it comes to specific bullets, um, you know, maybe we can generate a margin for error just by you know, testing these experts. You know, we give them proficiency tests. And if, if you're going to say I should be trusted to, to give this kind of testimony to a jury, let's see you prove yourself first, right? Well, a lot of these fields have been really resistant to that type of testing, and that's understandable because they have nothing to gain from it, right, and a lot to lose. They're already accepted in courts across the country. Subjecting yourself to testing, you know, the the best that can happen is the status quo. The worst is that, you know, you you perform poorly and now you, 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 you're not certified as an expert or defense attorneys now have ammunition to use against you. Um, but as the scientific scrutiny kind of um, – uh, ratcheted up on some of these fields, they did start administering their own tests. Um, the problem is the tests aren't reflective of the way they do their jobs day to day. So a lot of the practitioner administrated tests. Um, so one example is that they will give you two um, groups of bullets, group A and group B, right? And you have to match the, the bullet in group A to the bullet in group B that was fired by the same gun. Well, the problem with that is you know as a test taker that every bullet in group A has a corresponding match in group B, right? Well, there's there are very few scenarios in which an analyst is ever going to be asked to do that. Um, maybe, you know, if you have a shootout or something, right, and there are five different people shooting and, and five different types of bullets and you have to match them up. But that's very, very rare. Most of the time, it's you're get, you get two bullets, one from the test bullet or the test bullet that was fired by the gun that's suspected and the bullet at the crime scene. And you look at them at the same time and you say they're a match or they're not a match. Um, so that's what they should be tested on. Um, so because what they're and, and what they're looking for, I guess, uh, just to get the very specifics of how this is supposed to work. in right. Theory is, uh, you know, because obviously the big problem here and you sort of discussed this earlier with it may, I think a lot of people could probably get their head around how 
you could match a nine millimeter bullet to a specific kind of gun and you know a, a glock 19 or something because it, it you know it, it it has the right number of lands and grooves for the rifling right. and the twist rate and you know the general idea that you could see something that matches that specific kind of firearm but how do they explain getting from you know a glock 19 where there's just as a general gun that probably fired this bullet to that this specific glock 19 right out of the millions that have been made and sold throughout the world how, how do they um claim that they can do that so that's you know that's where this gets really really interesting so you know even on an assembly line you know making the exact same product hundreds and hundreds of times over over the course of the day at some level, right? If you keep keep zooming in, zooming in, zooming in, at some level, those products are going to be different, right? Because no two things are exactly the same at the molecular level. And so, what the the theory is is that when you manufacture a gun, when the lands and grooves are cut into the gun, the machine that does the cutting leaves imperfections in the lands and grooves, tiny, tiny imperfections. And every, so every gun is going to be different on this very microscopic level. And every time that gun fires a bullet, it goes through the, the, the grooves and these tiny little imperfections put little scratches on it as it goes through that like you can only see through a microscope. And because, and every gun gives you, leaves unique scratches that can be a, a traced to that specific gun. Now, you know, I think that this is, um, pretty far-fetched for, for some reasons I'll, I'll get into later, but I want to address your, your testing question first. Um, yeah. So, so what would, let, let's say, so that's the theory and we'll get into some of the issues with it, but you're saying they, they've come up with their own tests for it, but, but they're substandard. What would be a good test, I guess. And, and has anyone developed it and tried it out? So, so the, they, they move beyond these group A, group B tests. And then, um, so at this particular uh, trial, it comes out that the, the state's uh, expert, uh, who's a, a forensic firearms analyst, he has his own test that he's given people um, over the years. And uh, a group of um, public defenders in New York got a copy of that test and they gave it to a half dozen attorneys in her office, uh, attorneys who had no firearms training whatsoever, forensic firearms training, were not experts, just defense attorneys. Um, and they all passed it with flying colors. Now, mm -hmm. if the whole point of these tests is to sort of um, validate the unique expertise that firearms analysts bring to a trial that juries need to be told about the fact that these defense attorneys who have do not have that expertise do not have that training were able to ace this test is a pretty good indication that this test is not measure is you know is not evidence of that expertise right um mm -hmm. so what would be i guess so yeah so the ideal test and i want to talk about these two aims tests that that were given but let me tell you what what the ideal test would look like a real test would be a, a an effort to measure um, proficiency uh, at these people's at these analysts as as they do their day to day jobs as they perform in you know day in and day out. And so we do have one lab that has done this, and that's the Houston Forensic Science Center, um, which is a crime lab that was started after a number of scandals. Um, the idea was to, you know, we're going to create the first crime lab that is run you know, strictly along sort of scientific principles. Um, and so the guy that uh, runs that lab, Peter Stout, uh, has made that commitment. And so one of the things he does uh, is over the course of the workday, um, I mean, probably not every day, but uh, at any given time, one of his analysts could get a fake 
uh, a fake case, right? And this is to test their ability and test their proficiency. And the idea is they don't want, they don't know when they're being tested. Um, and so he masks the test. And in fact, he, he gives um, Star, Starbucks gift cards to any analyst who can sniff out one of the test cases, you know, because he wants them to be, he wants them to blend in, right? He wants them. Uh, and so what he found with this, his firearms analyst is that when it comes to um, determining whether two bullets were fired by the same gun, which is one type of test, or two bullets were find, found or fired by a different gun, uh, the error rate, <coughs> uh, I'm going to make sure I remember these, somewhere between 10 and about 40%. Um, among that's analysts. pretty, that's pretty wide area. Right? That's a pretty big margin. I mean, if you're talking about sending someone to prison or death row, I mean, I think you will probably want to narrate well below 1%, right? And, you know, to his credit, he released the results of this and, and he doesn't let his analysts testify to anything that he doesn't think is grounded in science. So they're not allowed to match one bullet to one gun in, in trial. They can, they can give broader testimony uh, about, you know, I can't exclude this gun. Uh, but he won't let them because, you know, he found that, that that they're just not accurate enough. And it's not a reflection on, you know, it's not that they're bad analysts compared to other analysts in the field. It's just that, um, you know, this is this, I think, see, the problem with giving people these tests, these proficiency tests outside the laboratory is that people are going to change the way they take these tests when they know they're being tested. They're not going to take the test the same way that they perform their jobs. And we want to know how well they perform their jobs because that's that's what we're going to use to determine whether or not this type of evidence is reliable and predictable. Um, and so what he found was that it's not. And, you know, this is also a lab that um, presumably, because of his sort of commitment uh, to science, is probably hiring the most conscientious analysts he can. So this is pro these are probably some of the best firearms analysts out there, you know, and this is their, their margin for error. Um, so I don't think it's a test, you know, I don't think it speaks to the quality of the people working in that lab, I think it speaks to the fact that this field in general um, has a very high margin for error. And that's something that we need to reckon with. Right. I mean, I think to somebody, I mean, honestly, even to a lay person, the problems with this sort of pattern matching for firearms seem fairly obvious, right? I mean, you know, you're going, I understand the basic idea that even though a mass produced that, that a mass-produced gun would still have some slight variations to it compared to, you know, the one manufactured 10 down the line. Um, but it does start to seem very difficult to me uh, to have some really specific level, really competent uh, level of uh, certainty that you can match a mass-produced gun with the, with the with a single bullet that was fired from it, that is also a mass produced product. The ammunition itself is mass produced, right, right as well. Mm -hmm. And even if you, let's say there are some slight imperfections in the rifling of every gun, presumably that would also change over time too, yeah. right? This is another issue that seems fairly right. straightforward that the, the imperfections that are put in by use of the firearm yep. uh, are going to be something where the, that'll change the pattern of the marks it leaves on a bullet. And not to mention the fact that, you know, bullets often strike other things after they leave the gun, right? I mean, there's, right. there's right. all sorts of ways for these marks to get- uh, To get marked up, yeah. yeah. Um, but here, 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 I think, is the really kind of the telltale sign that this is not a science at all. Um, 
and I wrote in the piece that this is, you know, after 20 years on this beat, this, this still managed to astonish me when I learned it um, when I was researching this piece. So, you know, over the course of, you know, the history of forensics, there have been lots of exposés, investigations that have shown that, um, you know, when you're doing pattern matching, you, you, you generally come to one of three conclusions. Either it's a match, it's not a match, or it's inconclusive, right? Um, so what we've learned over the years is that a lot of times crime lab analysts will face a lot of pressure from police and prosecutors, um, you know, to either find a match when there isn't one, or more commonly, when they can definitely exclude someone, there's pressure for them to say it's inconclusive, right? Because the police still have other evidence against this person. So as long as you don't say inconclusive, you know, it's fine, you know? And so, you know, we've, we've seen lots of scandals where this has happened, where this has been proven. And while, you know, officials aren't always fast enough in terms of admitting something went wrong, sometimes they, you know, they, they skimp on the subsequent investigation, they try to downplay it. There was at least sort of acceptance that this is wrong, right? That, that, if you're doing a forensic analysis that should exonerate someone and you don't disclose that, instead you just say, ah, I don't know, it's inconclusive, that that is, you know, unethical and it's probably a violation of the constitutional right. rights, right? Right, yeah. So here's what I found in researching this. Um, that's not true in ballistics uh, and firearms analysis. So most crime labs across the country, including the FBI, you know, one of the most prestigious crime labs in the world, uh, allegedly, um, it, as a written policy, they will not exclude uh, in a firearms analysis. They will they will implicate someone. They'll say this bullet could only have been fired by this gun. They will not say this this particular gun could not have fired this bullet. They will not exonerate. So if you're a really yeah, and it's a written policy. These aren't rogue analysts who are kind of doing this under the table. It's the actual policy. Yeah. Now here's their explanation. And doesn't doesn't that yeah, doesn't that undermine the whole concept, right? If the whole idea is that you can specifically tell that a specific gun fired this specific bullet because of the imperfections in the rifling, then you should be able to exclude every other gun, right? That's that is exactly the point. And so the way it was explained to me was, well, we can't do that. We can't say a gun, one gun could not have left these specific marks because, as you just hinted at, over the course of its life. Uh, of use, a gun is going to change and it's going to, the, the imperfections are going to get worn down, or maybe there's going to be new ones created. And so we can't say that this gun could never have possibly created these marks. Now that makes sense on its own, if you, in isolation, okay. I, but I get, at the same time, so what you're saying is I'm not comfortable scientifically in saying this one gun could not have created these marks, but then they, they turn around, they are comfortable saying Every other gun, but the in the world, but one could not have created these marks. I mean, it just doesn't yeah. That's make where sense. it doesn't make sense. It's yeah. just absolutely mind blowing to me. And look, if you're a prosecutor, plus you think that every time, like you clean the gun, right? If you're running a, a wire brush through that barrel, you're leaving little imperfections all over the place every right. single time you clean it. Yep. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know. Uh, so the only way I could see, even under, even if you assume that this theory is correct, that little imperfections in the in the lands and grooves of rifling can produce specific markings that you can then match against the bullet that's been fired and hit something uh it would only be true for a very short period of time i would i would guess right yeah and you don't know what that period a couple of time shots is. right and and yeah. you know, a lot of times they'll fire you know eight to ten test bullets in, in these cases um right but here's and the wouldn't they all have to match right this, uh, man 
But here's the other thing. I mean, yeah. if you're a prosecutor, though, that now and you send, uh, you know, a bullet and gun to the crime lab for testing, you you have nothing to lose. Right. At worst, it's a wash and they're going to come back and say right. inconclusive. Um, but, you know, it can only help you. And so, you know, friends of firearms say we want to be taken seriously as a science, that we're objective, we're fair. But if if the only results, you know, can either uh, are either a wash or going to hurt the defendant, that doesn't seem objective. That doesn't seem fair. Right. That seems right. like something. It seems like a tool for, for prosecutors, you know, and um, I, I was just absolutely floored when I saw that because um, I don't know of any other even bite mark, you know, even some of the more dubious fields of forensics. Um, you know, there have been lots of rogue characters and lots of cheats and, and quacks, but none of them, you know, they've all claimed to be objective, right? They've all claimed that I'm, I'm just as willing to exonerate somebody as I am to implicate them. And yet now in this field, which is probably, you know, one of the more widely accepted ones in courts across the country, certainly it's been there around for about a century now. Um, that's not the case. And I, I was kind of, kind of blown away by that. How does this work in a place like California or even New York where they have uh, micro stamping requirements? Because the whole concept of micro stamping, right, even though it's a theoretical technology that doesn't actually exist in practice yeah. anywhere, is that you need to add a special component or way of marking casings in order to actually achieve what is being claimed uh, possible with this sort of ballistic analysis is the whole idea of micro stamping is you you have to create a firing pin or some other device within the gun to mark every fired round with a unique identifying uh, number or code or qr code or what what have you like uh, some sort of unique identifier um uh, doesn't that imply that the state of California thinks that ballistic analysis doesn't work? It does. Yeah. I mean, and look, they, I mean, it's not just bullets. They, 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 they also claim they can trace um, casings to one particular gun just by the marks right. left on when the firing pin strikes and then the, the ejection uh, mechanism. So, um, yeah. but that, yeah, that's I mean, where micro stamping would undermine all of that. Wouldn't yeah. It? The, the fact that they, they, they want to mandate it, I, I would think strongly suggests that they, they understand that it's not, traceable or identifiable to a single gun. Um, and look, I mean, I think I think we need to be real about this. I, I think this is the correct decision in Chicago. Um, I, I think that this evidence is not based on science, but, you know, it is going, I mean, if this if this ruling catches on and other courts start ruling this way, it is going to make it a lot harder to prosecute gun crimes. I mean, unquestionably. And, you know, a lot of these cases, um, they probably got the right guy, you know, um, and, and yeah. Yeah, but, I was going to ask you that, <laughs> like how how many of these people are really innocent? I guess, but but we don't um, know. I mean, uh, you I mean, know, the, my guess is it's probably reflective of of what we know about innocence in the broader population of of people who've been in prison, yeah. or about three to five percent. Um, but uh, you know, we don't know. It's it's impossible to say. But you know, I guess the question, I guess you'd side. But for you, would you side on the the classic um, principle that? You know, you'd rather let a thousand guilty men go free than lock up one innocent one. Like, is that is that essentially where you're coming from? With well, this? I mean, I think it's even more basic than that, which is just that. Um, I mean, I think that we should have to. I mean, the state should have to use um, the state shouldn't be able to use quackery to put people in prison. Yeah. You know, I mean, you can't bring in yeah. a palm reader, uh, you know, or a tarot card reader to to provide evidence of somebody's guilt. And you know, I mean, these right. guys are are. You know, I, I, I 
they hate it when you use this analogy, but you know, it's like when they, when they, they only want judges to consult other uh, firearms analysts when they're deciding whether the entire field is legitimate or not. Um, And, you know, the metaphor I always use is that's like saying, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to decide whether tarot card reading is legitimate science or not, but I'm only going to consult other tarot card readers for, for opinions, right? Um, You need sort of that outside opinion and you need scientists from outside the field to be evaluating I mean, is that how you feel about this whole field generally, or is it like, I mean, what do you, what do you, what are the pieces that seem uh, to meet that standard of credibility for use in court? And what are the, you know, what would you throw away? Would you just keep the class identify identification stuff where it's, you know, oh, this is a nine millimeter fired from a, a barrel that has a certain twist rate for the rifling and certain number of lands and grooves, uh, but but you'd toss the stuff where they're like this, this bullet absolutely only could have come from this gun in particular. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Um, and look, I, that's not to say that we won't, we may not get to the point where um, we do have science to back this up. So one of the things I mentioned in the, uh, sorry, my dog. Uh, well, of, your dogs are, they have an opinion on it. Yeah. Um, so one of the things, one of the things I mentioned in the article is that there, there, there is research going on right now um, with 3d imaging um, and some of these researchers, they're, they're scanning bullets into their computer systems with 3D scans, and then they put them in the databases. And they're first, you know, they're trying to see if it's possible to create an algorithm that would be able to match a bullet to a specific gun and generate a margin for error. And, you know, mm. we're not there yet, but even the sort of critics of this, this type of analysis that I talked to have said, you know, they're open to the idea that we could be there, like we could get to that point. Um, but, you know, these okay. those researchers are also constantly testing themselves. They're testing their algorithms. You know, there, there are ways to know if the algorithm is accurate or not. And so we may get to that point. Um, but right now, it's basically we're just relying on the words of these analysts who, one, don't do well, very well when they're tested. And two, don't even tend to agree with each other on a piece of evidence on what it means. And that, I think, is just it's not suitable, you know as a reason to send someone to prison or, or even the death row. Okay. So the general concept of being able to match a specific bullet to a specific gun may not be completely absurd, but it's not achievable right now is kind of where you're at. Yeah. And even the people that are doing the 3d imaging that, you know, they have not, they're not setting out to prove that this is possible. They're setting out mm-hmm. first to ask whether it's possible. And then if it is, to try to generate the algorithms, the algorithms that can pull it off and generate a margin for error, but you know, I, okay. I do think the fact that they, you know, they're 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 willing to take on this research while questioning, you know, what the outcome is even going to be is important. I mean, that tells you that these are, okay. you know, scientists that are pursuing you know knowledge and not people who are sort of, you know, pursuing a particular end, which is to to you know help convict someone. So you find that sort of pursuit of this um, this general concept to be a more uh, acceptable way of doing things rather than how it works today in court? Yeah, well, because I think a lot of forensic firearms firearms analysis began, you know, in the early 20th century with the premise that already accepting the idea that this was a thing that could be done, right? That we can match one Mm -hmm. to one gun. And I think these researchers, these these three D people working on the three D imaging, are saying, "Well, we don't even know if it can be done. Let's let's test that first. And if we find out yeah. that you know 
it can be done, then let's figure out how we can do that in the most accurate way possible. Um, but you know, that, that first question uh, to this point has never been asked. And I think that's probably the most important, but any field of forensics, like we, we need to first be asking, like, is this even something that can be done? You know, is it even possible to batch one set of teeth to one bite mark on human skin? Yes, that does seem like a pretty important baseline to have, especially when you're considering locking someone up in prison for long periods of time over the results of these sorts of or potentially uh, getting the tests. wrong person. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. In case you, in case you let um, go. Right. I mean, you know, certainly you could uh, repeal the fourth and fifth amendments and just let the police lock up anybody they think is bad, I guess. Maybe they'd probably still get a majority, right? But you'd, I don't know that anyone would want to live in a country like that. I mean, North Korea has a really, really low crime rate, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, so we appreciate you coming on the show and, and giving us an update. It seems like pretty significant news and uh, we'll have to follow what happens from here. If this is the start of a trend or, uh, you know, if this judge is stays out there by himself and this, this, the type of analysis that we've, you've detailed the problems with here continues to be accepted in most courts. But, uh, uh, where can people, if they want to follow along with this and other really criminal justice related news, cause you, you cover a lot of it, you do a good job of, uh, of questioning some of these, uh, sacred hogs, I guess, or slaughtering some of the <laughs> sacred hogs in this, realm on a daily basis over at the watch so uh, tell people how they can find out more from you yeah it's just uh, my name radleybalco.substack.com or you can just google me um, but also the name of it is the watch you can find it that way um and uh, yeah i'm supported by readers um subscriptions although all the content is free um so i just ask people to subscribe if you know they think the work is important and informative so wonderful well i would encourage people to go out go over there and check it out read this piece it's it's got even more detail than we were able to get into on this show. So uh, I would highly encourage people to do that. Read some of the, the studies themselves. you got it all linked there. It's a really good resource for anyone who wants to learn more. Um, and I really appreciate you being on the show. We'll have to have you on again down the line to give us another uh, update. Sounds great. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. All right. We're going to head over to our, our news update now. All right. I'm back with contributing writer Jake Fogelman. How are you doing this week, Jake? I'm doing pretty good, Steve. How are you? I'm all right. Uh, I heard you got a, a new gun. Is that right? Uh, that's right. So I, like you, I think, uh, kind of have a history of working with ARs, building ARs, kind mm. of used to that platform. Yes. Um, but I very recently dipped my toes into the AK side of things as far as semi modern semi-automatic rifles go. I, uh, I picked mm. up a, a Serbian a, a Zastava AK. AK folks out there might know, recognize that it's one of the primary import AKs that people buy in, in the U.S. Okay. So I picked that up. It's a nice wood furniture. It's beautiful. Tiger maple looks looks great. I really wanted a, a nice wood furniture AK, kind of the standard look. Mm -hmm. And I uh, I took it shooting for the first time last weekend, um, and it, it was just a blast. I didn't put I put like 100 rounds through it, but it was, it was just great. It's great to shoot. Nice. Uh, is it a 47 or a 74? Uh, it's 47. So it shoots the seven, six, two by 39 rounds. Oh, you got the full, the full weight, the, the, the full bore version, huh? Right. Yeah. Especially cause I didn't know if I wanted to get into AKs down the line. I wanted to get kind of like the typical AK, you know, so that's why yeah. I went iron sight, wood furniture, seven, six, two yep. by 39. And it, that's it was the way just awesome. It, I think. Yeah. Agreed. Um, you know, those old world war two era rifles are obviously the, the 47 is, Two years after World War II, 
where the number comes from there, but uh, still that same air basic era where they're still using larger cartridges. I mean, the, you know, the 7.62 is still a an intermediate cartridge com- compared to what, you know, the 30, 30, odd, uh, sorry, 30-06 or some of the other rounds that were used um, at the time, but, uh, but it still packs a pretty good punch. And, oh, yeah. Which is why they reduced it later on down to was it five four five I think is the seventy fours right fairly similar to to R five five six here in the NATO side of things yeah but you still kind of get that at least from my recollection shooting forty sevens you still get that kind of heavy gun with a bigger round feel to it uh, which is which is pretty unique compared to like an AR uh, or a lot of the modern semi-auto rifles that you'd see around today which use you know smaller cartridges like the 556 yeah absolutely i took a buddy of mine uh, to shoot it with me who's kind of new to shooting rifles and he shot my ar you know previously and i, I let him try the ak and he, he was surprised he said wow that definitely kicks a little bit more than the mm-hmm. ar and i said yeah it's a it's a bigger roll it's a bigger round yep yeah so that's always fun, sure. fun to see yeah and so uh do you think you're going to keep going down the the AK rabbit hole now or the what's the- We'll see. I kind of got I kind of got the bug a little bit. I see the appeal now yeah. why their AK guys are so passionate about them. They're it's just something about just whereas an AR it seems a little more intricate. There's it's, mm-hmm. it's more complicated. The manual of arms is a little bit different whereas AK yeah. is just brute metal and wood <laughs> side right. charger and, and 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 shoot a big heavy round. It's it's appealing. So we'll see. I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't put it past me to, to, to somewhere down the road, get a, another one or maybe some other com block weapon. I kind of like the the old Russian, maybe like an SKS or something like that. Yeah, uh, there's a certain design logic to it that's uniquely Russian. Yeah, that's for sure. Uh, and, you know, it's always interesting to see these historical firearms uh, and how they actually function when you when you own them and. Uh, it's sort of like being able to interact with a, with a piece of history, even though it's, right. you know, that gun I'm sure is not from 1947, yeah, so yeah. much later, but you know, the design hasn't really changed terribly much uh, since it was first implemented. That's true for the AR as well, I, I suppose. But right. uh, um, yeah, it's, it's a definitely a different experience than taking your five pound, uh, you know, AR with made of plastic and, uh, and a little bit of amount to the to the range, but you know, some of these car- carbon fiber four ends and stuff that people put right. on ARs now, you get them uh, way down in weight. The what would Stoner do type gun projects from you know in range and forgotten weapons where they're trying to make that gun as light as possible. Some of these three D printed versions are even uh, more absurd in right. that regard. And then you switch over to the old Soviet block of steel and wood it's a very different experience absolutely yeah but it's a blast yeah yeah for sure um that's awesome yeah I, you know I, I should probably get an ak i just never i should never pulled the trigger so to speak on it because they're not they're not terribly expensive i suppose now they're a bit harder to find because of so, the import bans that have you know come in over the last couple really couple decades they've been whittling away at russian imports yep um Sometimes for understandable reasons, like like the invasion of Ukraine, but uh, but actually most of that the restrictions happened well before that. Sure. Uh, but either way, uh, they're still out there. I think people tend to be kind of snobby about AKs, though, right? They, they don't. Uh, as yeah, you sort of mentioned in, at the top. 
yeah, American made AKs are sort of like if you talk to an AK guy, that's like heresy. To and it's just kind of some, hilarious. So, and, and it's not without cause, right? There are some American made AKs that have had real problems. So I get why some folks talk down on them. But there are American made companies that I think are trying to change that reputation. But sure. if you talk to AK guys, it's all about the imports. It's all about, oh, your, yeah. you know, Serbian imports, they Bulgarian block, imports. You know, Soviet yeah. block guns. Um, it's sort of an authenticity thing, I think. You know, yeah, there's probably a argument to be made about how the different manufacturing processes for each. But uh, I think it's it's more like a authenticity play. They don't want an American Soviet gun. Right. They, American copy of a Soviet gun. They, they want um, one that was you know, made in Stalingrad or whatever. <laughs> um, and, and so it's, but it is kind of funny because the AK's reputation, obviously worldwide is this like cheaply manufactured, right. Uh, gun that's made in the tens, hundreds of millions over the years. Uh, and people here in the U S shun them if they aren't the cheaply produced mass produced <laughs> right. Soviet versions. Basically. Right. It's part of the character uh, of the rifle. <laughs> yeah, certainly. So are you going to, uh, the other stereotype for the AKs is that you're going to like store yours outside, buried in the ground or whatever. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, Only clean it with a garden hose and then right. throw, it in the, <laughs> throw it in the safe. No, I don't think I'm going to do that. I'm actually yeah. uh, in the process of babying it with some some oil on the wood to treat the wood. and Because uh -huh. like, like you said, it's almost like a, a piece of history. It's like almost like an art yeah. piece, half art piece, half gun. Sure, especially with how. Collector's how, item. Right, and how nice the wood looks. So I do want to take pretty good care of it. It'll probably be uh, half safe queen, half range toy, that, that sort nice. of thing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I also think a lot of that stuff is incredibly overblown, right? The, right. Especially the AK versus AR thing. Especially if you watch, like, mud tests of each gun. Um, the AK is simpler to maintain. I, I'd say that's probably yeah. a fair point. But uh, a lot of the AR sort of stereotypes around how hard it is to to clean or maintain our like vietnam era myths or at least right. they come from some mistakes made at the very beginning of the the you know night when the, the guns were first introduced in the late 50s early 60s and they were using different kinds of ammunition than you would find today and so uh some of that stuff's pretty overblown but uh the ak obviously by proven design let's say that much yeah it's the most common rifle in the world for a reason. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And one of the reasons is that it's a good gun. There's lots of other reasons. Too. That's true. That's true. <laughs> but, um, uh, but yeah, so that, that's pretty cool. I, you know, maybe I'll have to get an AK at some point down the line. I have to think through what my next gun will be. Yeah, I've been really into, you know, mostly handguns. I mean, I you know, around here in Northern Virginia, you got mostly indoor ranges. So right. taking your rifle out to the 25-yard range is not... Right. the best experience but uh the rifles are still very cool I tell they you are uh I've, I've got an update on the carry situation i guess so just a quick one uh yeah, i'm still i'm still testing out the filster enigma and still really liking it but it obviously needs uh, you know appendix carry in particular it needs you need a it's pretty finicky you got to really work at it to make it fit your body properly um and so I'm still doing that. One of the things is that you, you kind of have to wear your pants a little bit higher than you might normally wear them. Um, especially if you've got my body type with my, you know, with the, with the stomach, it's, uh, 
So I, one issue I've run into is that I, I use like next belts, the ratcheting belts, and you cut those down to size when you get them. And so, you know, so that they'll fit where you normally wear your belt. And so mine are all kind of a little bit too tight to wear up a little, like really where you want the gun to prevent keeling, where the, where the gun sort of comes, sticks out from your body because the belt's too low on it and it pushes it in. Um, and so I bought some new, you actually kind of want uh, flimsier belts or at least not extremely stiff belts like you'd normally have for gun carry because the filster is its own, has its own belt system, right? So it's not relying on your pants belt to hold it in place. And so your pants belt can actually work against what you're trying to accomplish. And so I got some new uh, belts when you try out. I got, um, you know, I've moved, I've moved things around and moved the buckle around and I'm just trying to tweak things. I might try to get a bigger wedge too. We'll have to see. Uh, it's really, it really is a whole process uh, <laughs> to get it to, to exactly how you want it. I think I'm going to get some Talon grip tape too, the rubbery stuff. Cause the, yeah. the SIG uh, X macros grip is more sandpapery. It's not super abrasive on your hands, but if you've got it against your stomach all day, it gets a little bit, it's a little much. So I might put a rubberized grip on there or grip tape. Um, and we'll have to see from there where, where I end up. But I, you know, I also, the whole thing is like, I want to get appendix as good as I can and see if I end up wanting to do that full time all the time. If it's better, you know, there's obviously some advantages. You can draw better from a seated position. Like when you're driving, uh, it does conceal better. So it may be better for me, especially in the summer months where, where I'm not wearing, I'm just wearing a t-shirt most of the time because it does conceal a lot better. Yeah. Uh, than strong side for me. Uh, so we'll have to see where it ends up. I have been, I think I'm going to try and get another strong side holster too. I think there's, um, there's a decent like Kydex, uh, hybrid out there. That's like three quarter Kydex shell. So it eliminates a lot of the usual problems with your hybrid holsters. And, um, I forget, what, I forget what the name of it is. I'll have to look it up and, and tell you guys uh, on the next episode. But uh, yeah, I think I want to upgrade my strong side at the same time. So I might have, I might have two different systems. I don't even know if that's a good idea or not, but um, maybe, maybe appendix in the summer when it's, when I need to conceal better and um, strong side the rest of the time when I want more comfort. Yeah. Yeah. I switch up sometimes cool. when I, uh, for example, in the winter and fall, when I go into the office, I have to wear a, obviously a dress shirt tucked in. So I can't really get away with the appendix, but mm. I'll carry strong side and wear a jacket over it because like a cover garment. And that allows mm. me to go into the office, you know, concealed. Yeah. And but the rest of the time I carry, a pen, I'm an appendix guy since I started carrying, but I do occasionally switch up just based on circumstances. So I, I don't think that's unreasonable yeah. to, to have different options for different scenarios. So maybe I'll, maybe that's where I'll end up. Uh, we'll see. What do we got in terms of news this week, though? Yeah, so we got a I think this is a pretty interesting story. This is from The New York Times. Um, Politico also did a, a report on this. But uh, apparently the lawyers for Hunter Biden are planning to challenge any potential charges that they may face um, related to his past drug use and his sort of poor firearms ownership habits, shall we say, um, but they're planning to potentially contest those charges with a Second Amendment challenge using the new Bruin standard 
that uh, Hunter Biden's father, President Joe Biden, has called an affront to the Constitution and, and a crazy conservative theory run amok. So it's just an interesting dynamic that, that we may see uh, where Hunter Biden may very well be the next Second Amendment plaintiff. Yeah, this is fascinating, right? Um, so this stems from his, he bought a gun in October of 2018. And, you know, it's so when you buy a gun at a gun store, you do the background check. And on the background check, it asked you whether or not you're uh, addicted to a controlled substance, you know, a habitual drug user. Um, and so in order to pass the background check, you have to say no. And the problem for Hunter Biden, of course, is that he wrote a book after that where he explicitly says, uh, and he's repeated this many times in public interviews, that he was using drugs, um, specifically crack cocaine, I believe, um, all the time during that period where he bought this gun. And um, so that kind of opens him up to charges that are actually fairly unusual because it's difficult in court generally from experts that I've spoken with on this topic to prove that somebody is addicted to a controlled substance, that they're a habitual user of it. You could have them come in the, the police station and say, yeah, I smoked weed this morning or I, I did meth or whatever uh, the same day they bought the gun. And it'd still be hard to get them on that charge for lying on the background check uh, because you have to prove that they, that it's a continuing habit that they have. Um, and so that's where Hunter's book becomes a problem for him. Now I, you know, I'm not a lawyer, so I don't know exactly how public statements by suspects work, uh, you know, in books, how admissible that stuff is in court. He obviously is going to have the best possible lawyers, but it seems like they're concerned he might be charged for this situation. Uh, and by the letter of the law, it, it seems like he did break, uh, the, break the law and lie on this background check. Now, this is not a crazy defense, what's, what they're considering here, right? We've been covering this since Bruin, and there's been some progress for uh, drug users who have been convicted of uh, either lying on the background check about their drug use or um, or having guns while using drugs. And we've seen at least two rulings to that effect um, that went in favor of the plaintiffs. Uh, they went in, sorry, in favor of the defendants, I guess, in this case. this would, These would be criminal defendants. Right. Uh, these generally haven't been backed by gun, uh, sorry, gun rights groups. These have generally been criminal defendants as sort of wild cards of the Bruin era because, you know, obviously the Second Amendment applies to criminal defendants and not just to sort of organized gun rights cases where you get, you know, the NRA or Firearms Policy Coalition or SAF or GOA files specific suits intended to uh, have a specific out outcome because they want to challenge laws based on the Second Amendment. And, uh, you know, at the same time, you have plenty of these criminal defendants who have been charged with various gun crimes trying to you know, use the same ruling to their to their benefit. And, um, yeah, it wouldn't be it would be a truly bizarre situation, but it's not unthinkable that Hunter Biden could defend himself in this way and actually win. That's right. Yeah, it's by no means a subtle part of the law. So it could be one of the more fascinating Second Amendment legal stories uh, in the near future, depending on how yeah. this goes. And it'd be his father's Justice Department that'd be 
prosecuting him. Right. <laughs> uh, so pretty, yeah, pretty weird situation, but it doesn't seem outside their own possibilities. And then the uh, next story comes to us from The Trace, uh, and they reported on BioFire, which is sort of the hot new so-called smart gun that's been making a lot of noise on the market. And they've actually, the company, BioFire, has taken an interesting stance and said that they will be refusing to apply for sale in New Jersey due to New Jersey's mandate law that kicks in that says once a smart gun enters the market and is quote-unquote commercially available, gun stores in the state must sell a uh, a smart gun in their inventory and biofire says you know we don't we don't like mandates we don't want to alienate gun owners so we are not going to participate in that process which i think is interesting it is interesting right it's it's sort of a biofire i think has kind of learned the from previous um smart gun company attempts uh that their core audience is, does not want doesn't like these sorts of mandates uh and doesn't want them triggered by uh, a gun, you know, a company that is, is trying to sell them guns. Right. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, that seems like a fairly savvy move on biofires part to, tr- I mean, uh, you know, maybe they lose out on some business in New Jersey, but it builds more trust, I guess, with uh, gun owners potentially uh, because if they become, you know, this was a issue for Smith and Wesson even back in the nineties when they agreed to do, uh, to a deal with the Clinton administration where they were going to make smart guns and they were going to stop making guns that the Clinton administration didn't like. And that created a huge backlash in the gun owning community that um, I think a lot of gun companies today are still wary about. And right. uh, so you see BioFire, I think, reacting to that. And, you know, it's interesting because New Jersey has softened their mandate. It used to be one of the big impediments to developing a smart gun at all was that New Jersey law that they had in place for a long time. That's that, that used to say once a smart gun is available on the market, that's all that gun stores in New Jersey can sell. So they softened it, I guess, to this current mandate, which just says you have to sell them, which in theory would be a boon for biofire, if it didn't completely alienate so many potential customers everywhere else in the country. That's right. Yeah. But is it, it's a, you know, it's interesting because, you know, gun owners, I think are still a little bit skeptical or hardcore gun people are, I think are still a little bit skeptical, but it's, mm-hmm. you know, one small step to try to gain that trust. So we'll see if that's Yeah. Enough. I mean, there's going to be plenty of gun owners who never want to buy something like what biofire is selling, which, which is like a biometrically locked firearm essentially. Um, but you know, that's not everybody. And um, if people want to buy them, I think the general feeling in the gun rights movement is that they should be able to buy them. The problem comes with these mandates where um, people who don't want to buy them should not be forced to buy them is basically the position that I've seen from, you know, National Shooting Sports Foundation, for instance, the industry's trade group says that. uh, And most of the gun rights groups I've seen talk about this, have the same basic position. Right. And then the last one. comes to us from Gothamist, uh, talking about New York, uh, their new micro stamping law that has yet to take effect, but it is on the books. Um, apparently, there's a government agency that's supposed to be doing a study right now to evaluate the quote unquote, uh, commercial viability of micro stamping technology. Um, and once they declare similar to California's law uh, in the late 2000 or early 2010s, where once micro stamping is considered commercially viable, it's going to be required for guns for sale in New York. And apparently that mm-hmm. agency is 
blown well past its deadline for when it's supposed to produce a verdict. And I guess they're having some trouble evaluating the so-called viability of the technology. Probably because this technology doesn't actually exist anywhere. Right? <laughs> uh, I mean, there's no companies that make this, not anywhere in the entire world. This is the thing, like, even if the argument is that it's not made here because of what we just talked about, the smart gun situation, where the there's a great deal of uh, opposition to this concept among gun owners and the gun industry uh, that might keep it off the shelves in America. You would think that if this was a viable technology, it would show up in Europe somewhere. You know, there's no reason that it couldn't. Uh, there are European gun companies too, <laughs> there, uh, or Brazil or any, you know, there's lots of gun companies all over the world and none of them have a gun capable of micro stamping. Um, and they never have, and no one's even ever produced an, a working prototype of one. None of the gun companies. So there's California certified this as uh, viable technology under attorney general Kamala Harris, who is now vice president. Um, and ever since that happened, not a single gun has come out with the technology in it. And effectively what it meant in California was a total ban on new handgun sales, uh, sales of new handgun models ever since she made that decision to certify. So if there's any sort of objectivity to this report that they're developing, and I'm, my guess is most people would expect there isn't going to be any objectivity right. to it. Uh, then they would have to say, no, this isn't a viable technology. Um, and maybe that's why they, maybe that's the problem. Maybe that's, you know, you would expect politically that they would just rubber stamp this, but perhaps they're not. And maybe that's why they haven't produced this report. Uh, the other interesting bit on this, and we talked, I talked about this with, with Radley on the main interview. Uh, and I'm interested in your thoughts, Jake. This seems to undermine the idea of ballistic matching especially casing matching where uh, firearms forensic experts claim that they can match individual casings to individual firearms based on the markings left by the firing pin on the primer of the shell casing. Uh, now, obviously what California is saying and what New York lawmakers seem to want to say is that doesn't work and you need to have a specialized um, a specialized device to um, actually make this concept work um, which is uh, you know I, I think that does a, says a lot no yeah I agree it's it's kind of undermining their own uh, rationale for ballistic matching, um, basically tacitly admitting that it's all sort of been pseudoscience in the past, um, which is, I don't know, it's sort of a, an interesting thing to suggest when you're relying on that technology to make convictions in the past. And now you're saying, well, actually, we need this new thing that may or may not even be real to bolster. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and so that's the big takeaway to me is like New York's going to do what California is, has done, um, It'll be interesting to see if this this little uh, board actually comes up with a different solution. Um, I think your microphone <laughs> dropped off. Yeah, uh, it's not letting me switch you back. Sound, you sound different. All right. Well, either way, that um, 
And I think that's a big problem for the field of forensic firearms analysis. At least that seems like an obvious one to me, but uh, I don't know. Maybe perhaps judges will become more skeptical over time because of stuff like this. Um, I guess we'll have to to wait and see on that and follow up with, with Radley when, when there's more news on it. Uh, additionally, this week, that we also wrote several stories, actually, about um, the pistol brace ban being implemented by President Biden. Uh, the deadline to register your braced guns has come and gone. And now if you have a braced firearm, then the ATF considers you to be in possession of a run unregistered NFA item, which carries the potential penalty of up to 10 years in federal prison. Uh, so pretty significant penalty. And right before that deadline hit, we got four injunctions issued against it. Uh, however, they were limited in nature. They are not nationwide injunctions. In fact, the requests for nationwide injunctions were rejected by all four courts. And instead, they're limited to the named plaintiffs. But one caveat there is that the named plaintiffs include groups like the Firearms Policy Coalition, the Second Amendment Foundation, and Gun Owners of America, uh, as well as Maxim Defense, a, a company in Rainier Arms, uh, companies that make these guns. Uh, and what we've got clarity on right before the rule went into effect is that members of all of these gun rights groups are included in that named plaintiff category. So that's millions of people. Uh, additionally, Maxim Defense's customers are included as well. So anyone who buys a gun, either bought one or I guess buys one from here on out from them, is also included in this injunction. So it's quite a lot of people that the ATF will not be able to uh, enforce this rule against. But at the same time, it leaves millions more gun owners uh, without those sorts of protections as these cases move forward, because in large part, uh, the Supreme Court has seemed to sour on these nationwide injunctions that have become more popular in the last you know, five, six years. And so um, it seemed that the Fifth Circuit, especially the the three-judge panel on the appeals court that really is uh, the one leading all these injunctions, the other three injunctions from district court judges kind of came at the behest of, of or not at the behest, but at the direction of these, of the, the higher court. They're just sort of following exactly what the higher court was doing uh, to the, to the T because that's how they're supposed to operate. Right. And, um, you know, uh, it's a pretty big blow for President Biden, I think, and one that is really reaches beyond just this rule because now he's had all of his uh, executive orders held up by the courts in one way or another because they're unconstitutional according to these judges, and um, and I think that's a that's a pretty big loss for him and a fairly significant win for. Um, the gun rights groups in this situation. What do you think, Jake? No, I think that's right. And it's funny, it kind of reminds me of, speaking of other executive orders, the course that this has taken sort of reminds me of the so-called ghost gun ban, where you've had multiple judges in multiple cases issue injunctions, but it's sort of been this piecemeal 
uh, method. Um, in that case, it was the major uh, kit manufacturers that were mm-hmm. getting their own individual injunctions. In this case, it's individual gun rights groups. Um, so it's sort of, it's not a nationwide injunction, but when you're taking the lion's share, perhaps, of folks that actually own these products, it's, it does become a major impediment to you know, seeing his agenda be carried out when, you know, the vast majority of folks that would theoretically ostensibly be affected by this rule are no longer affected by it, at least until litigation plays out. It's definitely right. a big blow to, to what he tried to do when, right when he got into office. So. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's it's going to be significant moving forward here as well. It is interesting to see that we haven't had any rulings from other circuits. This is all these rulings are in the Fifth Circuit and they're all following what the Fifth Circuit panel did. So, for instance, one notable name not on the list of gun rights groups whose members are protected by these rulings is the National Rifle Association, right? The largest gun rights group in the country, um, four four and a half million plus members at this point. Um, that's because they've been involved in a different case in the Eighth Circuit, one that's also seen twenty five Republican attorney generals join. Uh, as well as the the industry group for brace manufacturers, uh, uh, Frack is the name of it, and that case is fully briefed. There's been um, no movement though, and and the deadline obviously was sort of the key date to do something about it, and they just didn't. Uh, same, there's a, several other cases in other circuits as well, and they may become important down the line here because. It's very likely this, this the Fifth Circuit panel is going to find this rule unconstitutional on the merits because to issue these injunctions in the first place, you have to get um, to the point where you think it's likely that the the law or the ban or the rule is unconstitutional. So um, it's extremely likely that that's what they're going to find when they get to the, the ruling on the merits. But um, that will potentially just apply in the Fifth Circuit, which is Texas, Mississippi, and Louisiana. So in theory, the ATF could continue to enforce this rule everywhere else in the country, except maybe against these gun rights groups members. That seems to apply to all members throughout the country, although there's some question. They're one of the panelists in that three-judge panel raised questions about maximum defense customers being protected because... Um, the, he felt that that was sort of an unlimited potential group uh, because it could be anyone who buys from them in the future. And so there may be some questions down the line, especially when this gets pe- appealed past the, this first panel as to how far you can really push an injunction like this. Um, so that's where other circuit cases become more important. And we'll have to watch and see exactly what happens with them. I have a bit more on this over at the reload on, in a member's piece for anybody who wants to to read more about it. But speaking of which, if you're not already a member, you should go ahead and buy a membership today. You'll get exclusive access to that piece and hundreds of other pieces, as well as this show a day early and the opportunity to appear on the show for a member segment, which I always enjoy doing. And if you're not ready to make a purchase to support our reporting, that's okay too. You can also support us by liking or reviewing this podcast on wherever you're listening to it uh, and sharing it with other people as well. Um, leave a comment on our YouTube channel and we all, you know, always try to interact with those as much as possible. And um, yeah, that, that's, for, <laughs> that's it for this week. Uh, 
I'm going to go watch the Phillies probably lose again now. <laughs> so wish me luck with that. Unfortunately, I've been on locally here in the D.C. area the last couple games. And boy, it's not been pretty to watch. So I don't have high hopes for watching it in person today. But we'll have to see. That's it for this week, though. We'll see you guys again real soon.